Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Jeff Porton. He's an IT consultant and an author, most recently of Take Control of Your Productivity with Take Control Books. How's it going, Jeff? I'm doing well. How are you today, Brett? Um, okay, so as a Minnesotan, I always answer this question. No, that's, it's not even a Minnesotan thing. Right. Because I'm weird even in this community. I feel the need to answer that question honestly. And I will say I'm pretty good. Okay. I'm yeah, I mean it's not blazingly hot today. This has been a horrible summer here. Oh, heat indexes up in 115. Oh my god. And I mean and you usually have temperate summers, right? Right. Uh we we get we get uh Midwest heat plus humidity that like people in Missouri and South don't understand. <laughs> okay. Well, until you get really south, I suppose like Louisiana understands this, right? But, but they're used to it. I mean, that's the no, that's a year round thing for it. For, right? For them, they so. don't also have to deal with negative fifty oh, winters. Right. I'm starting to. Uh, people have always asked me why would you live in Minnesota, and I've always had my reasons. But with the recent climate, I I question. Although we're not on fire. <laughs> we don't have earthquakes. We're not right. flooded. Uh, in general, uh, the tornadoes that plague a lot of the Midwest do not hit where I live. Right. Uh, in general, it's a very safe area. Although I, we I, are seeing a spike in mosquitoes, which will be the death of us all. But Are, are you near Minneapolis-St. Paul or are you also I'm, in the I'm two hours south of Minneapolis. Okay. I'm I'm basically if you look at a if you look at the state of Minnesota and you find the southeastern tip of it, mm-hmm. that's essentially where I am. I can okay. walk to Wisconsin. I can in about half an hour be in whatever south of here, Iowa. Geography so, not my strong point, but why, why would one walk to Wisconsin? Is there any reason to do that? Nope, that is fair, a fair question. Uh, we are near La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is a town I actually happen to love. Uh, in general, Wisconsin is not a place I enjoy or love, but La Crosse and Madison, I, I would I would go to the mat for. They are wonderful cities. Excellent. Uh, I, I grew up in Philadelphia, and then right after graduate, like, so I, I went. I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to Penn um, shortly after I turned sixteen. So I never learned how to drive as you know as in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I never learned to drive ever. I just never came up. So um, when I finished grad school, I moved to Washington, D.C., and then about 15 years later, I moved back to Philadelphia. Um, so thanks to Uber these days, you know, it used to be that I was public transportation locked. And now thanks to Uber, in most cities the, where, where they have the pool services, it's so cheap to take a pool that um, I don't even really have to care about mass transit unless the traffic is so bad that you're better off on a subway. So when I, you know, so I've been all over the country. I've, I've actually traveled the world when I was younger. And so I've been to Minneapolis. Uh, I think I made it out of the airport for a few hours. I've never actually gone to anything there. That is but, the first thing when people say I've traveled the world, they often say I've been to Minneapolis. I say you, this, you can't tell, but I'm, I'm laughing. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I, usually like if I, if I have a, if I'm flying like a Northwest Minneapolis used to be one of their hubs. So when I would fly, when I fly through a connector city, 
whenever possible, I would book enough time to get out of the airport and go see something in that city so I could say that I'd left the airport. I don't remember if I did that. Like, for instance, I did it in Seattle once. I was flying this bizarre route. I was going to Calgary from Philadelphia, and my free ticket was Philadelphia to Seattle to Vancouver, British Columbia, and then back to Calgary. So I had time to see Seattle for the evening, but I did not have time to see Vancouver, B.C., um, and you know, usually if you can get four or six hours and there's a public transit connection to the city, it works out fine. Um, I don't, you know, but I mean, Minneapolis, St. Paul, I have a buddy there. Who, I have a buddy from uh, when I first moved to D.C. who is somewhere in the city, Paul city planning, uh, the St. Paul city planning uh, hierarchy. Like he was working for the city. I think he's now independent. And I've heard great things about that area from him. So I would love to visit someday. I just need to choose to get there. So what what year would it have been that you saw the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport? It would have been late 90s sometime. It was probably when I was doing most of my – oh, it could have been, could have been earlier. And you, uh, you have not been to MSP since then? I couldn't tell you. I mean if I'm not getting out of the airport, then I really don't care where I'm stopping. So, so here's the so, thing though. MSP – and I've traveled – within the United States, I've traveled to all the major airports. Right. And at this time, MSP is one of my favorite airports, having nothing to do with being a Minnesotan. It is a class act of airports. Um, if you ignore the news stories about, you know, certain bathrooms and politicians <laughs> and all of that, I'm sure that happens everywhere. But uh, like the F gate bathrooms like the F concourse, the bathrooms there are the literally the best bathrooms I've ever been in to the extent that I had to write a whole blog post about them after my first experience there. The same year, they were ranked best bathrooms in the United States by whatever airport magazine. They, they received recognition beyond just my, uh, my blog post. You have to come visit, even if just for the the bathrooms and the redesigned. Uh, I think it's F eight. Okay. Uh, the it's the terminal that that Delta flies to San Francisco from, and they have replaced all of the bench seating with booth seating, with USB ports, with iPads at the table. It, it's it's brilliant. I well, love I MSP. One, I have one question, which is the way I rank every airport I'm ever in which is I'm a smoker. So I get off the plane for a layover and some airports are smart and they realize that smokers, when they have a chance that they can get their fix in between two long plane flights, they're going to, they're going to smoke. They set up smoking areas, either, you know, outside, like there's a door outside the terminal or there's a smoking room. Other airports pretend that smokers don't exist and they force you to go out through the front of the airport which means you pass through security on the way out and you have to clear security back on the way in because there's no way to get outside except doing it twice. I, can't, I, longer... I can't answer that at present. I haven't okay. smoked for a decade. Well, I can Salt tell Lake you City... that sorry, previously, previously, Minneapolis was 100% the airport you had to leave through security, smoke your cigarette, and then come back in and go through security again. Right. That is... Th and Minnesota is, for non-smokers, Minnesota is excellent. Like, we have state laws that say you can't smoke within 20 feet of any door to a public building. 
mm-hmm. even at a bar. You can't smoke inside the bar. You have to go 20 feet from the door to smoke. And after I quit smoking, this is, it's a great thing. I love it. As a smoker, I found it. In fact, it's part of the reason I quit smoking. It just became so inconvenient. Right. Well, you know, my, my attitude is I, you know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons I smoke, I mean, obviously I, I just got addicted when I was in my mid twenties. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't even start until grad school. Um, but one of the reasons I smoke is that it's been one of the most effective ways of getting me from ADD monkey brain to having a little bit of focus. And I've always said that, you know, I'm more interested in managing my health from the neck up rather than the neck down. <laughs> you know, now, now that my head, you know, like, like for the last couple of years, I've been on better medication and I'm in much better shape, uh, like from the neck up. But I'm in horrible physical shape from the neck down because I don't pay attention to what I eat or, or, you know, what I smoke. So I'm nearing 50. And, you know, I'm in a place right now where I should start paying attention to these things a little more. And I don't intend to quit smoking, but I certainly tend to turn off the automatic you know, 15 cigarettes a day, which is about what I average. So you talked about, though, that basically your smoking is self-medicating for ADHD. I, I perceive it as such. I could be wrong. I mean, I realize well, there's a that's, confirmation that's the, bias. The thing with, with that I've found with nicotine is that it is, it's 50% mental. And the reason that it helps with my own ADHD has always been that it's, uh, nicotine has just enough of a stimulant effect to kind of focus my brain, but it's also something about the habit and the ritual mm-hmm. that can uh, it can center me. And as Absolutely. I quit smoking, I found that I I could find other habits that centered me in the same way. It took medication to replace the stimulant effect of nicotine, mm-hmm. uh, and so I will absolutely say that's. Uh, a legitimate self-medication. Uh, same as people who drink 10 cups of coffee a day to try to compensate for lack of attention. Like I said, I leave my Starbucks to have my smoke. So you know what I'm doing there. Too. <laughs> so uh, are you are you currently otherwise, uh, we'll say legitimately uh, medically medicated? Yeah, so I take Ritalin right now, um, and I would like to get something a little. Uh, you know, like I, when I pop a Ritalin, it feels like I'm popping a Tic Tac. Although certainly on days that I'm compliant with the Ritalin, I'm I'm definitely more. You know, I mean, like I, I can see the results even though I don't. I'm not consciously aware of a change. And I'm taking uh, uh, Lamactyl. I think is the name of it. Yeah. Uh, Lamotrigine is the is the generic. Right. And that's been. You know, I'm 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 diagnosed bipolar too, um, but. I've always, uh, you know, 10 years ago, we discovered that I respond much better to monopolar treatments. And typically, you know, I've tried everything in the last, you know, 20 years, with the exception of Wilbutrin. I was contraindicated for that. And, you know, sometimes they'd work well for a couple of weeks, but always after six months, there was a tail off effect where we had to switch it up. Um, I'm officially treatment resistant by whatever criteria they have. But, uh, you know, I've been on Lamactyl for probably two or three years now. And I've had, you know, it wasn't a miraculous turnaround and I still have, you know, I, I go to Las Vegas for in January for a couple of conferences that I write about for tidbits. And, uh, you know, whenever I come back because of the excitement of Vegas, I always have a few weeks of uselessness, which, you know, sometimes can become months of uselessness if I'm not careful. So that still happens, but it happens at a lower level and day to day, you know, my, my baseline is definitely much higher than it used to be. And it hasn't gone away. I haven't had to switch it up. So I'm thrilled with that stuff. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm on crappy insurance where I'm 
paying out of out of pocket for my meds. So everything I buy is generic, and that's why I'm on Ritalin and, and Lamotrigine because you know I think my med costs come out to about sixty dollars a month, Ugh, and I, I can't afford anything. It's several hundred dollars. So the uh, I, so I too found uh, Lamotrigine extremely effective for my bipolar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the only med that has survived for. I think probably over a decade now and it's never had to really be tweaked all that much. And right. it has kept me very, very stable. Um, as far as, you know, <laughs> bipolar episodes go, right. I, I, I do quite well on it. Um, do, do you have a manic risk with that or are you, are you, does it, does it keep you from going so, too high? It does. It does keep, as far as I can tell, it does. Something is keeping me from going too high. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you start to combine it with uh, ADHD, the stimulants used to treat ADHD, you do run the risk of triggering a manic episode. And I've had a couple of, like, I'm rapid cycling. So for me, a manic episode is three to five days. Right. And I haven't hit a point where I'm like, in that crazy blackout gamble ten thousand dollars <laughs> you know leave home end up on the street i haven't hit that manic point since i was in my early 20s maybe excellent so yeah and i turned 40 when this podcast comes out it will be my birthday oh happy birthday i'll be 40 years old and i will have had almost 20 years of not being entirely crazy uh, that's that's good because I've had I've had what I consider to be my worst uh, depressions in the last five years, um, and until I got on uh, Lamactil, I thought that I was on a just a descending spiral where I would probably be like regarding the smoking thing. I've told people in the past I wouldn't be. It might not be a bad thing for me to drop dead in my fifties uh, because if, at the at the rate that I'm going down, at at that it looked like sixties to eighties was going to be just a miserable time to be alive. Um, now I'm feeling much more uh, optimistic about at least my trend line as long as I pay attention to it. So uh, I'm no longer saying I'm, I'm no longer quite as fatalistic about about you know where I'm going in my future. But um, I mean, for the, me, the main thing that has been both fantastic for my mood and fantastic for my productivity uh, and ability to stay focused and ability to work is last month I became the uh, the chair of a nonprofit that I've been involved with for, for 30 years. And I'm getting to put ideas into motion that I've been working – that I've wanted to do for 25 years and I've always faced political uh, turf battles where people didn't want me to do these things. It's, it's an educational science nonprofit, which we can talk about if you want to. We're going to get to that. Okay, so basically the because I'm doing these things that I've always wanted to do and because some of the things that are the mission of the organization I feel are vitally important and my personal heroes have specifically told me that they wanted, you know, that they were impressed with what I was doing when I was doing very little and that they wanted me to keep up in their name and they've since passed. Um, I feel I mean this is like a this is an obligation for me. So in the last four weeks, I have more of a sense of purpose and more of a sense of really doing something important than I've had in years. I mean, like my book is fantastic because when you write a book, as you well know, at the end of 2018 and you look back on what you did, well, you know, client work kind of all muddles together. I know I help people. I don't know how. 
writing a book, you know, I wrote a book 21 years ago and I wrote a book this year and I can say that was my 2018. But what I'm doing for Pugwash is absolutely, even, even if I'm, my ideas will fail and my successor will have to come on board and do something totally different. What I'm doing right now is the, is the best thing that I know how to do to do something important. And I have no question about my value in this world or all the things that depression tells you you're worthless. So I'm curious to see if, you know, if maybe next February I'm inoculated against this kind of depression because all the things you tell yourself when you can't get out of bed, I know aren't true. And I can, you know, tell my inner voice to go jump at a rolling donut. I, I see, I use nicer words that time um, <laughs> to, you know, I, I know how to tell myself to tell those voices you're wrong. This is important, and I am in a unique position to do it. So I'm hoping that that will raise my baseline because it's certainly I am you know, I'm working I've been working 100 hours a week in the last uh, two months because I'm just now taking over and there's so much to do. So it's I worked out yesterday. It's like my fifth job because I've got my consulting, I've got my marketing, my consulting. I was writing a book. Now I'm marketing the book, um, and I have and I'm volunteering on a political campaign. So you know. This is clearly not an ADD lifestyle in terms of how much I'm managing, and I think the number of tools – and certainly I, I can't say that any one of those things is where I want them to be. I'm constantly running behind my personal goals for them, but all six of them, the balls are in the air, and I haven't – I haven't dropped any responsibilities that I'm aware of yet uh, for the last two months, and that is totally – that is a totally new position for me to be in. And I think Pugwash, you know, the, the sense of importance there is what's uh, making everything I'm doing just feel a little more vibrant and a little more necessary. You know, because I know full well. I mean, like my hyper focus and my and my uh, uh, a little bit of, of uh, narcissism and uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, grandiloquence. I could certainly focus Wait, on what word was that? Grandiloquence, um, feeling that I'm—it's uh, a little bit of narcissism. It's—it's it's a feeling that you're your own personal Caesar, uh, where where the uh, you know feeling more important than you actually are, feeling more crucial and more uh, uh, you know that if I go away, everything will just completely fall apart without me. That's that's okay. grandiloquence. Yeah, okay, okay. So, um, I mean, I and when I had you know, when I was running hypomanic in my twenties, I had that all the time. Sure. So you know, I, I worry about it now uh, when. Oh now I now I lost where I was going with this. Um, <laughs> so so the, I mean so I've got the sense of importance. Oh yeah, so I know. So I I, I know that in the past I would have a huge problem where I throw myself into this nonprofit work or in volunteering somewhere, to the expense of you know blowing off my clients, blowing off my marketing, and and you know having to switch to ramen for a month because I wasn't making any money. So I know that that's a problem for me, and I pay attention to not doing that again. And, you know, I'll certainly admit in the last two months, I mean, there have been weeks when I was working far hard, harder on stuff that doesn't pay me versus stuff that does, but, you know, four more hours anyway. Um, but right now I feel like I'm giving time to the things that I have to do for money reliably. And, and some of those things are things that I think are important and that I have an obligation to do them for reasons that are not financial. And I, th I think the, the fact that one of the things I'm doing has that sense of purpose is it, rather than eating up time from other things, is actually providing energy for other things. And so, and I didn't know that would happen. And I was, 
I, I, I became the head of the organization because I had to, because no one else was stepping up and because bad things were going to happen if I didn't. And I was not sure what the effect would be on my be on my personally. So I think it's been a fantastic result. Okay, and I hope so it, I hope it lasts. Let's since that's where the conversation's going. Let's talk about what pugwash is. Sure. So the the way most people heard the word is back in 1995, the pugwash conferences on science and world affairs uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize, and the person who founded it, co-founded it, and ran it for years, Joseph Rotblat, uh, shared the prize with them. So Rotblat was the only person on the Manhattan Project who walked away from designing and developing the first nuclear bomb because they found out the secret news at the time. And now we know it. They didn't. You know, it was, it was top secret then. They found out in the late nineteen late nineteen forty four that Hitler was not going to get the bomb. To which, at which point he said to the rest of the scientists there, that takes away our moral right to build it ourselves. If, if Hitler's not going to get it, no one should have it. So he left the project at that point. He was one of the physicists working on it. He was hounded for decades as a communist as a result because clearly if you won't build a nuclear bomb, you must be you know, anti-American. But he goes back to, to Great Britain and he founds the Pugwash Conferences, which for probably – 50 years, um, and even today, but you know, they were really prominent during the Cold War to bring together Americans, you know, you know, NATO and the Warsaw Pact on a scientific level, people from both sides, where they had diplomatic discussions to try to make the world a safer place and to lower the risk of, of genocidal weaponry. So my organization, Student Pugwash, or I should say Student Pugwash USA, because there are other international groups that do the same thing. Uh, we were founded in the late 70s to mimic what the conferences were doing. And eventually became a nationwide student network of people working on any ethical issue in science and technology. And by working on it, I mean holding events on their campuses, nationwide conferences where we talk about these issues, but also train students and young professionals to become leaders in their communities on these issues, but also on other things. So everything that I'm talking about in terms of my volunteerism for the last 25 years started with my time in student pugwash because that's when I be, the first time that people said to me, "You can be a leader. You can be important within this within this field and this, this this topic area." And that was my that was my activism training. So that's what we do is we we, we train young people to become activists, not deliberately. I mean, we have we'll have like sessions at our conferences, but um, you know. It's kind of osmotically that the leaders bubble up and we give them as much rope as we can. But everything is around ethical issues in science and technology, which in the last 10 years has meant much more just promoting science as opposed to pseudoscience and feeling that your opinion about, say, GMOs is more important than the science on GMOs because, you know, it's truthiness. You feel it in your Stephen Colbert gut. Um, so, you know, GMOs is a perfect example where – uh, you know, we'll talk about, say, climate change, and we are definitely on the side that climate change is happening because 90, you know, it's that whole classic 97% of the scientists believe it. But GMOs is a counter thing because the science basically says that GMOs are totally safe, but it's the other political side that, that you know, it's largely the liberal side that's saying, oh, GMOs are horrible. We have to shut them down. And by doing so, okay, that's fine in a wealthy country where we can afford to use old agricultural techniques, but there's about 2 billion people who are going to starve in 20 years if we don't use some kind of technology to increase our agricultural output and to put you know, better foods on the table like yellow rice, which provides nutrients that rice doesn't have and which is a staple crop of 2 billion people right now and probably 4 billion people by 2050. So you know, I mean that no, – no, everything I just said 
about that is an opinion, but it's factual. The GMOs are the best technology we have to create these things, and they're known to be safe because there have been about 2 trillion meals eating. You know, people have been eating them for 20 years, 2 trillion meals, and we have not seen any changes in nutrition or health impacts from the people who have been eating GMOs without realizing it. So that's just, that's just the science. That is a de- decent sample size. Yeah, so what, so what we would do is basically so about GMOs, you know, because you know, we're not a liberal organization. We are nonpartisan. Although, you know, if you're pro-science these days, you get many more liberals. <laughs> we always have been left-leaning in terms of who came to the organization. But you know, for GMOs, we would hold certainly hold a debate where we'd get. I would hire. I would not hire. I would. I would invite. Um, people from the anti-GMO community, the, the, the top names who, but only the ones who talk science, not the people who talk polemics, to present on their side. I'd bring in nutritional scientists and international aid organizations, people on their side, and just hold a panel discussion to talk about the ideas. 25 years ago, when I was you know, a student, we would do the same thing about climate change because there was a lot more up in the air. But we wouldn't do that today because that's not a scientific debate. That's a political debate, and we don't want to spread misinformation. We're not going to hold – we wouldn't hold a debate about evolution. What we would do is hold a debate about, say, the edges of evolutionary biology, the edges of science where there is some debate, or the edges of environmental, like totally within our wheelhouse to hold a discussion about um, how do we fix environmental problems on the assumption that we're not going to get to lower carbon emissions. So going on the assumption that we're going to have horrible climate change effects in the 21st century, well, there's a debate about how best to deal with that and whether we should and how we can. Um, that would certainly be in our wheelhouse to have that discussion. But we're only going to have a scientific – we're only going to hold a debate about climate change if there is a scientific uh, offshoot that is not funded by you know, big oil that is providing a contrarian view. So uh, what's the guy's name? Bjorn something. There's an economist who – is very well informed on the science, and he says he, – he argues with some of the science that's being published. He says that it's perceived that there's a consensus on these areas, but there's really not. So that's fine. That would be a topic. But he's mainly talking about you know, the environmental effects, uh, the economic effects of some of the things that are being discussed as ameliorating topics are really crazy. And he's and the Greens the – green, you know, the environmentalists and the Greens hate him because he's pointing out flaws in the – commonly accepted wisdom of the environmentalist side. We would totally have him to speak, even knowing that 90% of my board and 90% of our students would be hostile to what he has to say, because if he can make a good argument that we're presenting factual information, that's totally what we do. Um, and then I would want people in the audience to leave that to, to leave that discussion and to be activated. If they totally disagree with him, they go to their local, uh, you know, uh, uh, World Wildlife Fund chapter and do stuff. If they believe his argument, they go find other groups that are working on uh, to promote his ideas. That, that's what we what we want what we want them to do when they when they leave the discussion. So student student pugwash is the student pugwash USA, right? Who who is it? Who is in the group and who is it geared to? Who who shows up for these discussions? So actually, that you know, I love the fact you asked me that because now I can market something. Um, we've historically been a student group for college campuses and grad students. So basically, like you know, undergrads up. We have occasionally had high school chapters, which were fantastic because these kids were amazing in terms of their organizational skills and the fact that if you join in high school, you're you're a member in high school, but then you go to college, and most of the kids who became members in high school went on to grad school. So we had them for like 12 years. But historically, we've never done anything 
you know, once you graduated, you vanished from sight. We didn't have programs for them. Um, and I, this is this is what I've been arguing for 25 years: is that we should not have, we, we shouldn't drop the ball there. So, my board, we're just launching now a general membership network, where we want what we're, you know, what I'm calling grown-ups, because I, I don't want to say adults, because students are adults. But we're going to have, we're going to be doing programs and chapters for any people of any age. Membership dues and donations encouraged from the members. And then when we bring in those revenue, when we bring when we bring in those funds, when we weight them back outwards, we're going to weight them towards student programs. So we'll take some donations and use that to hold a nationwide conference that's good for all members and everybody gets to go. But you know, if we take in a hundred dollars that isn't allocated to a particular project, even if you know only half of our members are students and half of our members are are, are older. 75% of that's going to go to the students uh, to promote their programs, and 25% will go will go back out to the to the adults. So right now we're just launching this program. The website about the program just went up uh, two days ago. Uh, it's at uh, www.spusa.org, spusa.org, um, and. I, you know, I want your listeners, if they're interested in this topic, absolutely. We, we are we're reaching out to all of our alumni, but we're reaching out to the general public. Anybody who's interested in ethical issues in science and technology, and we've been talking about the flat the flashpoints, but that can you know anybody with an interest in internet technology and Facebook surveillance and government surveillance and and you know whether looking at our phones is disconnecting us from the real world, all of these topics are are under our umbrella and. Uh, we want people to organize however they see fit. If they want to organize in a regional chapter, that's great. If they want to, we're going to create a Slack space for people to talk about, uh, you know, by topic area, no matter where people are. Uh, we're, I'm hoping to hold a conference next year. So there's all these programs that are going to be, some of us are started by my board and some of which I'm hoping will come up from the grassroots where, you know, you can call me and say, there's this particular issue that's, you know, you, you talked about mosquitoes in, 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 in Minnesota. I don't know about mosquito control, but if you wanted to call me and say, let's do a panel discussion about whether it's ethical to eradicate mosquitoes in Minnesota. There's Holy. actually a huge ethical debate around that right now because uh, gene editing right. has become the central focus of mosquito control, mm-hmm. which is also, I mean, uh, uh, Bill Gates has been pouring his money into malaria research, and this is all coming down to we can eradicate mosquitoes in a couple of generations, which is for us or for mosquitoes, a couple of months, right. we can we can eradic- eradicate mosquitoes by basically making them all male mm-hmm. with a little bit of gene editing of genes that are passed through generations. We can make them all male and then they die off a generation later. And mm-hmm. the technology exists right now. Like it, it can be done in a lab, but there is. Uh, there is safety testing, but then there are larger ethical concerns that seem like exactly the kind of thing that Pugwash would bring up for discussion uh, as to whether or not it's safe, whether or not it's good for humanity, and at the same time good for the world yep. to do this. Well, you're you're the first guy I know of in southern Minnesota. So if you want to be the <laughs> organizer of that, we will we will get you started. I mean, like, I mean, so the way this would work is that so you've got this. You know, let's say you ha- you really want to do this, right? Um, you would contact us. We'd create a committee to support whatever you're doing, like maybe that one event or to you know any you know, an ongoing thing. 
we put you in touch with people in our database who have, who have been, you know, eventually we'll have the, you know, once the membership network is up and running, probably by the start of September, you know, we'll have membership roles. But right now we have a database of everybody who's been involved. I'd find you the people who are reasonably local, driving distance, and we'd put you in touch. And then you could organize the event, advertise it to people who've never heard of us before, put it together, let us know what worked and what didn't work. We, as soon as you know, basically, right now we're we're worried about funding because the 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 money that's going to be coming in from our members is going to be our primary source of income, and that hasn't started yet. Uh, so you know, if you do it in the next two months, you're on your own. If you do it. In January, then absolutely, we would, we would look to fund that, and absolutely, we would connect you to our resources near you to, to get you a, 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 a conference hall, maybe set you up with a discount at a, at a, at a friendly bar if we know the owner, um, all of this stuff. I mean, we, so we want to create the infrastructure for people like you to hold events under our umbrella that we don't know to do. And that's that's the kind of grassroots thing that I'm trying to build. So if any of your listeners are interested in that, then they shouldn't they shouldn't listen to what I'm saying as to what we've always done or what I'm saying what I'm suggesting to particular topics. You know, our, our umbrella is ethical issues in science and technology with an with us with an interest in educating young people and and making them uh, and making them feel politically relevant and politically involved. If if anybody has a topic in that realm especially if they have a contrarian topic, a contrarian point of view, and they want to – and they have a scientific evidence to, to promote it, then absolutely they should get in touch with me. I, I am definitely sensing that you welcome contrarian views. I, I Now, personally, I might argue with you to the cows come home, but in my position <laughs> as chair of the organization, I'm not going to exercise any power to shut you down. Sure. Um, but, you know, that said, you know, if – you know. I, I hear from the Fox News listeners to say, you know, I mean, like it, it, back in the early 90s, for some reason, the LaRouchians got into their head that we were trying to take over the world and they would protest our events. You know, I mean, we have we have flyers in our in our uh, in our archives about, you know, stop the pugwash brainwash, <laughs> which <laughs> I love. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure that, the you know, if, if we get prominent enough that the Fox News people hear about us, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to hear from them. Um, but if they wanted to come to us and say, OK, on this particular scientific topic, here's the evidence, here are the papers we want to present. We'll look into it, make sure that it, it stands up. Like we'll call some of our neutral experts at, at various universities and say, is this legit? But if they say it's legit and a contrarian point of view, absolutely, we'll present that to an audience that has not heard it before and is resistant to the message because if they've got research and, it's, and they want to try to – it's a legitimate scientific debate, absolutely we will hold it um, because we, that's what we do. All right. So let's jump back to productivity now. Absolutely. So I mean, I'll intro by saying that you know we've we've talked about like twelve different things that you know that I'm doing right now. If you had talked to me two years ago, I mean, I'd be happy if I was doing one half of one of those things. So I mean, the best that I can say about my book and the way the the, the methods that I promote is I've gone from a guy who is just on this edge of totally dysfunctional to somebody who is feeling on top of these things. And the way I've done that is I've taken 25 years of trial and error and writing my own software before OmniFocus and, and Kinkless GTD existed, um, which was a total disaster. Don't ever write your own software because <laughs> you don't know what you need until you build it and you spend six months building it. Um, so you know, I, I've gone 25 years of reading books, most of which are useless, some of which have a few good ideas, but never told me what to do on Tuesday. They just told me, oh, you got to do this in general. Um, throwing out software, trying new stuff, throwing that out. And, and I finally have a, you know, I finally came up with my own 
meta procedures of how to improve my system. And that's what I boil down in the book. So, for example, I just started using a couple days ago. I've been reviewing Daylight, the uh, uh, customer relationship software yeah. for Mac and iOS. And, you know, basically the best. Market the circle, best CR- right? I'm sorry. Market Circle Daylight. Market Circle. Yeah, yeah they're they're in they're in Canada. I've worked with a dozen CRMs. They're they're literally the best I've ever seen because it's 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 pretty and it's easy to use. And I would love to use it for for, for Pugwash, but because it's app only, you know, three quarters of my board couldn't touch it. <laughs> um, but I started using it, and now since I, since I live in OmniFocus and I have a dozen other tools in my in my toolkit for what I use, using Daylight, the first question is okay. If I start putting some emails and some tasks in Daylight then how do I make sure, how do I reliably go back to daylight to see those things again when most of my stuff lives in OmniFocus? And the usual answer is, well, once a week you go through daylight, you take all that stuff, you do double-entry bookkeeping, or you export it and import it, which is not good because that, you know, OmniFocus, you can't just dump it in there. You got, you know, if you dump it in, it goes to the inbox, and then you got to individually manage it all. Um, so, you know, you're spending hours and hours just organizing your stuff, not doing stuff. So in the book, I have the concept of pointers, which, you know, the name comes from C programming, as you know, um, where you do stuff in OmniFocus for what it's best for. But if daylight is better at managing certain emails and certain tasks, then there's a pointer in OmniFocus to say, go do the things in daylight. Or specific important things in daylight make it their individual pointer. So there's one master pointer that says, go to this tool and do what's there. There'll be there's a uh, I I'm setting I've set up that I haven't set up the next one. There's going to be a separate tool go to daylight to do specifically the student pugwash tasks that are there because some of the, more of those have a time commitment. So I want to see that pointer more often. And now I'll have two plays two pointers in my system recurring to send me over there, and the pugwash stuff will get more attention. So I have probably a dozen different places that I use this task management systems. OmniFocus being the the, what I call the task app in the book, the primary place where I start my day and finish my day, and and where all the, the centralization point of all of my pointers. But one of them sends me to Google Tasks because that's the best way for me to store stuff on my Android throughout my day. Uh, one of them sends me to my Finder desktop because I have I have you know dozens of folders there where it's much it's much easier to when I need to follow up on something just drag a URL or at least save a file to the desktop. Give it a file name that's essentially the task, put it in a folder to group it together, and then you know in 30 seconds I've organized a project that would take 10 minutes to find where in the OmniFocus outline to put it and to document it all. So you know I have a I have a pointer in OmniFocus to say go do the things on your desktop, which are well enough organized that they're what I call implicit tasks. I can immediately figure out what I need to do when I look at it again, uh, and I use tagging to make sure it's you know to, I use tagging to organize that. Um, in addition to folders. So the, 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 the pointer system allows you to use the best tool for each individual thing you're doing. And I think the, the mistake that a lot of books have and a lot of you know, certainly programming manuals have, because, you know, OmniFocus, OmniFocus's manual is fantastic, but it's going to tell you to use OmniFocus for everything. And what I say is, you know, try out new tools, use pointers so you can try a tool and then discard it later. The only thing that you should care about when you try a new tool is figure out how to export it so you can pull stuff out of there if you decide to drop it. And um, and here's the process of, a, of, of onboarding a tool. Once you decide you like it, you can keep on adding more. 
Um, at, at some threshold level, like some people prefer to have very few tools because they feel, even if it's well-documented with pointers, they still feel that there's just too much. The, the, the cloud of things doesn't fit in their head well enough that they feel like it's too scattered. Those people should use fewer tools. Um, people like me, where I've got, you know, I've got a dozen tools on my Mac, I've got a dozen more apps on my Android, I have, you know, Dropbox and OPML exports to move some of this data back and forth. People who are technophiles, they can have much more complex systems as long as they have a central place to look that points them everywhere else. Because otherwise, you'll put stuff in this app you just created and you'll never see it again. So for you, for you, that central point is OmniFocus. Uh, Absolutely. You, you point to the apps you're trying out, say, go check this app. And if that, if that app's not working, you export from that app and just bring it back into OmniFocus? Yep. So um, Google Tasks was, um, I just started adding that when I was finishing up the book because it just came out, I think, in mid-June, uh, the new version that's actually pretty useful. Before that, I was using Google Keep for anything I want to store on my phone. But that was, since that was a, mis- a mix of notes and to-do items, my to-do items get lost. I mean, like one of the key things in the book is um, when, you're, when you're creating a stream of information, so let's say due dates and OmniFocus, uh, I, I tell people that they should de- determine what's due because it's a hard deadline, what's due because I call it a firm deadline, which is there's something you have to finish in three months and you need to do 100 things to get there. A firm deadline is one that if you miss it, you're more likely to miss your overall deadline. But that particular thing is not a hard deadline. It's just the time it should be done by to keep you on track so, so it's not more painful later. And a soft deadline is something like taking out the trash, right? If, if I'm taking out the trash before it's sneaky, and, um, and when I say taking out the trash, I don't mean to, to put it out on the curb. I mean just take it out outside, which you can do any time. If you do it before it's sneaky and before the trash can is full, you can do that any time. Once it starts getting unpleasant, it, it firms up. It becomes more important to do it. Um, or laundry is another example. When you have clean clothes in the closet and you can do whatever you want, then you can wear whatever you want, then you don't have to do laundry. When you start running low on clean clothes and you start deciding what you can wear to work because you're out of professional stuff, it's now firmer. It's, it's important to do it. And if you're totally out of underwear, it's now a hard event. You have to do laundry. You have to buy more from Amazon because that's, that's now a hard thing you have to do on your schedule. What was that Johnny Cash line? Uh... I dug through I dug through my clothes to find my cleanest dirty shirt. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think every single man in the world has done that, or at least you know every single man in North America, because that, that those are the cultures <laughs> I know. So yeah, so basically, I mean, due dates are a horrible problem with this. Where like what I was saying about losing losing tasks in, among notes, um, most people without realizing it, most of the things that, that they think are due are actually a soft due date that they picked off the top of their head or a firm due date where it's kind of slippery. And I don't know of any software right now that allows you to distinguish between kinds of due dates. You've got to keep it in your head. You've got to explicitly make that note. But as far as I know, I'm also the first book that talks about this explicitly to say it's crucial to make these distinctions. So if you have a due date because it's a good idea, you just want to do it by then. Like I have a due, I, I used to have a due date where I said I want to watch a movie a week because I hate falling behind. That's never actually due, and so I took away that due date because when it shows up on a do list on a, on a list of items that are due today, watching that movie could keep me away from things that are genuinely due. 
if it's just how based on how it sure. sorts and if I don't do my context correctly. So it should never show up on a do list. It should only show up on, on a flagged list uh, or you know a starred list if you use a different system. A flagged list is where that lives. And I, I should get. To I my- envy. I envy the person who can consider a due date on a a to do item like that. That but, is luxurious. Well, okay. So I think most people, like I, I, the people I've consulted with, like I've done some pretty different management people, and just out of interest, I've looked at how they manage the systems. Almost everybody does this. Almost everybody assigns due dates to things that aren't due. You know, like for instance, they say, "I clean the house every Saturday." Drop dead. And I've always said, well, if your house is already pretty clean, you don't have to do it on Saturday. You can do something else. It just means that next week you got to schedule an extra 20 minutes to clean more. Um, or you could decide that it's not necessary for me to have uh, clean floors. I don't need to do the vacuuming one week. That's that's a self-imposed requirement. Um, you know, I say in the book when when I do when I personally do laundry, I don't I don't fold my clothes. I don't put them away. I've got a clean hamper and a dirty hamper and. I'm wearing a T-shirt and jeans right now. Those never need to be folded. I can just pull them out of the hamper. I, you know, my deadline to do my laundry is when the clean hamper starts getting near the bottom. And you know, <laughs> last week I bought more underwear because I was running low on clean clothes. I didn't have time to do laundry before I was going to a conference, and you know, <laughs> the underwear I had needed to be replaced anyway, so I bought more. Uh, you know, now I could have I could have said it's due to do laundry. Um, but to me, that was just a hard deadline, and I saw that problem in a different way than doing laundry. Uh, I think most people need to look at their tasks and decide what are the things that are really key. Like they, they personally think are, think is important. Like some people, if their house is dirty, you know, their house is disorganized. Especially ADD people, if your house is disorganized, you just can't think straight, right? Those people absolutely have a have a deadline. They have to clean every week, or they're going to harm other things. Uh, neurotypical people, probably not. They should decide what's important to them and do those things. So, so, but this book is written for the neurotypical, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, basically, it's written for the neurotypical. Most of the information about specific ADD and like, I talk about ADD and depression because that's what I know best. But people, you know, I, I in the book I say at certain points, this problem for some people is actually the warning sign that you have something serious. You know, that you, you have a diagnosable condition. And in those cases, there's a link to a blog post where I say things at greater length than I could fit in the book. The blog post is the uh, is is where I talk about it specifically, but it links back to the book in two ways. In the in the book, I talk about here are the things that most people do not understand is a warning sign. So certain kinds of chronic disorganization, uh, certain kinds of uh, lassitude, or you know not being motivated, or signs of depression, and I, on average. The only the people I only people I've ever met who really know what they're saying and talking about and really have any good advice to give are people who have either had it or people who have taken care of somebody who had who had one of these conditions. The average person thinks they know what they're talking about because they hear it on the news and are just totally deluded about what it's like and how it works and what are the warning signs. So I, when it comes to a productivity problem that I that could be a sign. I say, here's here's what you need to think about and go look at that post. And to give away that, yeah, go ahead. I think that's a really important approach. I feel like a lot of the people who are out to buy productivity apps and books and find that information are people who actually have mental conditions that are antithetical to productivity. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. saying this as someone who fits into that description. 
I think that uh, ADHD is more commonly diagnosed appropriately now than it has been in the past. Probably but, for younger people. I don't think people our age are getting diagnosed like that. I don't know. A lot of the people I talked to weren't diagnosed until they were in their 20s or 30s or even later. Okay. Um, I'm seeing it being recognized more now. But I do think, I think there are plenty of people ages 35 and up who will probably never be diagnosed, but definitely they're out looking, what's wrong with my productivity? Why can't I organize this the way the people around me seem to be? So I think it's, I think it's an important, I like that you wrote a book for everyone, for all the people looking for productivity tips from someone who has gone through a lot of trial and error to get there. But at the same time, you are saying, by the way, if this is happening, here's here's a side note for you. Let's yep. let's talk a little bit further about that. I like that. Well, and, and the, I mean, the other point that I make to everybody, I mean, most people are neurotypical, at least in this regard. So the other point I make is that because of my attention deficit disorder, because of my depression, I'm the worst case scenario for needing these tools and needing these tools to function because sometimes the engine of that system, which is me, the engine of my system is dysfunctional. It has periods when it does not work and cannot live up to the existing responsibilities it has. So my system has to be functional enough to actually keep me moving. Do you actually, you know, I, I, on a day when I have trouble getting out of bed, uh, which hasn't happened for a while, but certainly will in the future. If I can pull up my OmniFocus list on my iPad while I'm still in bed and look at it and think, well, I can do that one thing, then it's, it's, it, gives, it gives me an impetus that I can't generate on my own. But because I'm the worst case of needing it, that's why I think that my techniques are universal and will work for anybody because they had to work for me. And therefore, they're going to be, you know, the universe of what I need is larger than the universe of what a neurotypical person has. So they won't, some of the things that I recommend you do or that I say you should consider are necessary for people like me. They might only be good ideas for somebody who is normally productive and just looking to improve their work or improve their, uh, the direction of their work. Uh, that said, nearly everybody as in my opinion, has not considered their lifetime goals sufficiently and how they relate to what they're currently doing on a day-to-day -day basis, have not considered if they're working. If, if you're working for money, if the money is the reason you work, then you have different goals than just being, you know, I mean, like getting promoted or getting more responsibility at work does not relate to your goal in that case. Your goal is to make more money. And if you have the kind of position or the, you're in the kind of company where you can become stellar at your work and the most productive person in your, in, in your office and not get a raise, then you're not working towards your goals. You're working toward the goals of your employer who doesn't – you know, if they're a big corporation, they don't care about you. They care about you, you know, making their goals happen. So sure. you know, that, that kind of correlation you – know, there's a chapter in the book about uh, you know, leading up to – Deciding what to do about your productivity and where your productivity goals are just to decide, you know, is your goal to be more productive? What goal is it going towards? And maybe 
you don't need to be more productive, but you need to do what I did with Pugwash. You need to say, well, I need to do less of the stuff over here that's my career and more of the stuff over here with this thing that's providing real meaning on, a, on an immediate feedback basis to what I'm doing. Uh, and so it's, it's not more things. It's more of that and less of, and, and less of this. It could be less things overall. And more focus on, you know, one of the reasons I smoke is quality of life. I enjoy it. It, it improves my day. So, you know, that's not a, you know, I don't have to make, I don't have to work for that. I just get it for, I nearly said for free, but it's really 10 bucks a day. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if there are things <laughs> that you enjoy doing. who knows how much in the future? I'm sorry? And who knows how much it'll cost you in the future? Yes, yes. Well, you know, that's why I travel to Northern <laughs> Virginia. Um I mean, basically, if there are things that you do that you enjoy that do take work, that do take commitment, like, you know, I used to play the clarinet and I would love to take it up, up again because, you know, it's just it's just a rewarding hobby. If you don't do the things that are fulfilling to you, no wonder you feel less fulfilled. So you need to, you know, in that situation, if you're doing things that are a feedback based on the time and effort you put into it, then maybe what you you know, what you should be doing with your life is I will care less about my career. I will phone it in more often. And still make the same salary and still get the same rewards and play more clarinet or, you know, travel more often or take more vacation time or whatever it is, because those are your personal goals that have not been reflected in what you're really what you're spending 70 percent of your week doing. All right. So that's that's the lead in. And then once you decide those things for yourself, then we talk about tools. And, you know, you and I are omnifocus people because you and I are complex people. You know, we like complex systems with lots of flexibility. But, you know, I've noticed over the years that a lot of people who start with OmniFocus hate it. It's way more than they need, and they don't know how to use it effectively. And my book is not a a manual on OmniFocus. It just points to the manuals that are. And so I say, you know, if you're an OmniFocus kind of person, use OmniFocus. If you need a customer relations management system because you're doing an entire business, do that. But if you need something simpler, you know, things is great for that. You know, there's there are tools in the simpler categories. There's task paper, which can be simple or complex, depending on how you set up that system, depending on how nerdy you are. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So in the in the so in the book, there's a here's a list of of categories of simple to complex. I, I recommend that nobody should use iPhone reminders or Google Assistant to as as a primary task application because way too simple. Far more work to manage it doesn't help. You know, it's not it's not powerful enough. People should use something at least of the power of things or Todoist or the old Wonderlist, which has now gone away. You know that that level is is the baseline. That I think below that, you know, maybe an elementary school student is fine, but I think any adult is going to have problems with it. Um, and then on the website, I, there's a web page of here's a list of simple apps you can try for Mac, for Windows, for iOS, Android, and web-based, so it's you know platform independent. Um, and I'm going to update that as new apps come out. I'm going to add them to the list. So I'll add OmniFocus for web when it comes out. The idea is that you should kind of figure out what ballpark you're in, and then pick the tool that matches that ballpark. And there's going to be some trial and error, perhaps, of how to use the tool. And with the pointers, I mean the the, the pointer system and the onboarding system in the book. The first time you use it, you'll probably be using you know, a lot of people will be starting from this totally ad hoc system of writing down notes on their refrigerator and storing stuff on their iPhone and what have you. So there's an onboarding system to get from this sort of ad hoc system into a real deliberate organized system of various apps and various tools. And then if you switch apps later, you switch your primary apps later, you then use the onboarding system again to go from that system to something else. 
but this time you have the you have the experience of what worked and what didn't work, and you can apply that to the next thing you do. So there's wow. there's one process of switching over outside tools like what I'm doing with daylight, but you know it could be six months from now I realize you know I really need to have daylight be my primary application. This is this is where I need to live as opposed to OmniFocus. That'll be based on what I'm doing. If I'm you know if I'm doing the kind of things that require customer relations, I will. I'll use my own book to migrate myself from OmniFocus to Daylight, and then when I'm no longer the chair of Student Pugwash and I'm now no longer doing, you know, I'm no longer managing an organization of hopefully thousands of members, hundreds of whom are actively doing volunteer work, and I'm back to being a one-man shop. I'll migrate back to OmniFocus if that's the best tool for me at the time. Yeah, or maybe maybe I'll be retired and I'll use things. You know, (laughs) that makes sense to me as someone who finds I, I look for the best tool at the moment. I look for mm-hmm. the best tool for what's happening right now. And that does change as, as my responsibilities change. Um, I think there's, I think there's a lot here for, I think that applies to everyone even beyond ADHD people like us. So sure. that's awesome. And and part of my IT consulting over the years has always been like, basically I'm a, I'm a Mac guy primarily. And because I started my business in the early nineties, I became an internet guy. And, you know, I, 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 I've learned a dozen different web design systems. I do databases, basically a jack of all trades and always knowing enough to get myself in trouble uh, and, and to help out my, you know, get myself in trouble in terms of constantly learning new things and, you know, doing unbillable time. But also, you know, if a client comes to me with a problem, I want to either be able to solve the problem for them or know enough about the scope of the problem to point them to a colleague where they can get the, the, the problem solved. So uh, that, 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 that's the scope of my IT consulting is either being, the, being the, 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 the code monkey or managing the code monkey process or pointing people to other resources that I, that I, am, that I actively stay abreast of. So are you ready for, uh, for a top three picks? Oh, absolutely! Yes, we've been—I've been rambling forever. So, um, yes, we can—we can actually focus on something. All right. So this goes uh, back and forth, one at a time, and you get to start. Okay. So I'm going to start with uh, a rather anodyne pick that your your listeners have probably heard about before. But I went through your recent archives, and at least in the last six months, nobody has talked about these two books. Um, the Now Habit is a book by Neil Fiore. He is the the book is ostensibly about how to solve procrastination, and I've read 20 books on this topic because I used to I, before I was diagnosed I used to think I'm a procrastinator that's my problem I'm just lazy, um, and so I used to read all these books. The Now Habit is the only book that he's a psychologist, and the Now Habit is not really a, a product not really a procrastination book. It's a book about the inner psychological problems that lead to productivity blocks and lead to people being horribly unhappy and miserable and feeling feeling like lazy, unproductive people who are just of poor character. So um, the now habit builds from the ground up of psychological issues and I think is a really crucial book to read in addition to my own about people who are interested in the psychological underpinnings of, of why what they do, why their actions differ from what they think they've decided to do, differ from what they think their goals are. And the other book in that category, which I have not fully read yet, I I keep on going back to, I mean to read it all the way through, is Spark, um, which is about using exercise and, and, uh, you know, just physical motion and physical activity, how that really relates to brain function and keeping you on on schedule. Uh, Is Spark the same author? No, now have it is Neil Fiore and Spark. I want to say it's John Rady. Um, let me see. Spark was recommended a while back. 
uh, by another productivity guy. I don't remember, uh, but yeah, I'm looking it up now. Uh, Spark by John Rady. Um, so yeah, I mean he's he's written other books on on ADD. Um, I mean I think I think the the, the Halloran books, uh, the titles of which I'm forgetting, it came out about ten years ago. The Halloran books are are, are the best onboarding. Here's how ADD works, and here's you know, if you if you're if you're newly diagnosed or newly considering whether you have it, you start with John Halloran, H A L L O R A N. He's got two or three books, and the problem with his books is that you know at one point he says, uh, I remember in the first book he says, absolutely the most important thing for anybody with ADD to have is an understanding spouse who can do the things that you can't do, <laughs> and can and understands your your flaws. And I'm like, well, that's I'm not married. I've never been married. You know. My my psychological problems are why half my girlfriends left, um, or why I left the why I left the other half, um, you know. So this this is not actionable intelligence, and if you're already married, it's even worse because you know now you all of a sudden you've got a new reason to uh, to rate your spouse and believe that uh, they might be lacking in some way, which is never good. So, uh, Spark, what I paged through the first couple of chapters, I, every time I've looked at it, I've said to myself, I really, this is stuff I really need to do. And especially now that I am focusing on neck down stuff, um, I need to do it for other reasons, but I really should have tried this 10 years ago. Just so you know, neck down and neck up. Yeah. just so you know, I, when I was like 37, I weighed 200 and 260 pounds which was for my height, like 80 pounds overweight. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't even shovel my two car garage uh, driveway in the winter without like having to be in bed for a week. Um, and things had gotten really bad. And I, I just started walking Mm -hmm. and walking helped both my physical uh fitness as well as my ADHD it was an immediate like if i walk it wasn't an equal equation if i walked for 2 hours i could get half an hour of clear thinking mm-hmm. which was not tenable as far as a day job uh, and this is during a period where i i was unmedicated but uh exercise made all the difference in me getting back to a place where I could function as kind of a, we'll say, human being. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think I think I mean my what I've noticed is the deficits that I'm having is I used to you know because I live in cities most distances are walkable if you make the time, and I I remember I used to I used to have a psychiatrist when I lived in Washington D.C. My psychiatrist was literally a uh, six mile walk from his office to the closest train uh, the closest subway stop. Um, and I would walk it, you know, I would walk it in both directions to, to, you know, I would schedule the time to get off the Metro, walk to his office, walk the six miles back. Um, and, and, you know, that was about the edge of what I could do. I and mean, my legs would hurt the next day, but, um, any, you know, any distance that I could find the time to do, I would do. And unfortunately the last, uh, you know, and now, now, you know, now I have fewer things in the suburbs, so I'm not walking those distances anymore. But the main problem is that Uber in a, in an East coast city is dirt cheap. Um, because you can pool with other passengers. And so it's about the price of taking, uh, taking the bus or the subway in Philadelphia, uh, like 50 cents more. So I'm getting door to door service a lot more often than I used to. And that means that, 
suddenly the mile walk that I used to do twice a day on a daily basis, I'm not doing anymore. And I haven't been doing for years. So, um, see, I told I, you Uber kills people. <laughs> yes. At the same time, you know, it is literally a hundred <laughs> degrees of Philadelphia today. And, you know, I took an Uber to get to where I, I went. I went from where I live to Penn campus, uh, because as an alum, I get the, I get the, uh, the study room as a soundproof, uh, uh podcast interview. So, um, yeah, I mean, a hundred degrees, I, I feel no compunction about not walking. Yeah, uh, I get but, that. you know, but you know, when it gets down to 80, I absolutely should be making that time again and doing it. Uh, and only treating myself to the trip when, uh, when I, when I just don't have time, when, when, when I'm or, on deadline. Or when it's just straight up dangerous to walk a mile outside. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, I mean, not, not necessarily dangerous. If it's raining outside, that's not dangerous, but I wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> but that, my, my, my thinking is that like the, as I don't, I have no intention in the next, you know, I am, I'm, uh, I'm turning 50 in two and a half years. So I have no intention between now and the next two and a half years to actually, I'm not going to join a gym. I'm not going to start running, but what I am going to start doing is paying attention to what I eat. Cause in Philadelphia, the, the natural foods, like the automatic foods that you get are you know, horrible. I mean, I eat cheesesteaks four days a week because the bodega around my corner makes a really good one and it's dirt cheap. That is not healthy food. So I'm going to pay attention. I'm not going to give up cheesesteaks. I'm not going to stop smoking. I'm not going to join a gym. But I will, you know, walk into a Chipotle sometimes and buy the salad instead of the burrito and save myself the 400 calories of the wrap. Um, I, I will walk when I have the time and it's 80 degrees outside. And, it's, you know, it'll be annoying, but I'll do it. And the reason I'm going to do that is not so much brain. It's going to be because I was just at a conference last three days in New York City Um I was commuting from Philadelphia because hotels are ridiculous there, so I'm getting very little sleep, and I'm walking a lot in New York City, and I was just dead at the end of the three days, and today I slept till 2 o'clock in the afternoon to catch up. Um, that is less physical energy than I want and actually less than I need, and I know for a fact that if I exercise more, I will have more in that reserve. So that's the, that's the immediate reason I want to do this, let alone need to do this. The fact that it also helps my brain – is why I've been just stupid about managing this in the past. Although I had my excuses, I had my rationalizations, and sometimes there are genuinely good reasons. Now I'm in, I'm in the place now where I've always said I'm going to start managing this better, and, I, and I'm just giving you the list of other reasons why. I need to move more, and I need to – I want to go to CES in January and not have it kill me walking. Oh, that takes a lot of walking. Yeah, and I do it every year, and I, I walk twenty thousand steps a day. Splints just walking around CES one year. Yep, absolutely, and yeah. you know, it's it's mainly because I'm a smoker. If I, you know, I can walk on a flat surface for long, or I used to be able to walk on a flat surface for long distances. Any kind of uphill incline kills me, and now in the, just in the last three four years, you know, I I'm you know I'm noticing that the mid forties plateau of certain physical capabilities is steeper, you know, steeper downward than early 40s or mid 30s were. So okay, I need stop. I need to manage that better. Hmm? Uh, uh, d d only because it's my freaking 40th birthday, we're going to stop that right now. Oh no no, no actually so, 40 was fine. You know, it, 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 it's the <laughs> okay, middle stop, of the decade Stop. It. Stop. I don't want to know what's coming. All right, mm -hmm. so this has been a bit of trickery, but I've been threatening for a while to Make the top three picks one-sided and stop okay. uh, bringing my own three picks to this. Okay. Because, because seriously, I do this every it's week. It's hard. Who, yeah. who has – yeah. So we're going to go right into your second pick. 
Okay, that's fine. Um, uh, considering how uh, how uh, you know wordy I am and how I'm dominating the conversation, that's also probably... how your first pick was actually two books. So oh, I cheated. I know. <laughs> cheating, okay, yeah. So the second the second pick is um, one one tool that I'm sure everybody in your audience knows and probably uses, and one that they might not know about. Um, so I use Omni Outliner on my Mac all the time. Um, I didn't, I, but I mean, basically, I'm Mac, iPad, and I and Android. Uh, because I'm on Project Fi and Project Fee, and and you know that's an Android-only service, but it's too good to leave. So, and the problem is that you know I, that means I've got to be very careful. Where if I have data on my computer that I want to put on my phone, I got to pick and choose. So I have there's a third-party uh, GTD app. It's called Focus GTD that talks to the Omni Focus Cloud database and gives it to you there. Although it's you know it's not as pretty, and there's certain functions it doesn't have, but it's enough to read your lists. Um, but other stuff like Omni Outliner is where I put any project that I have to share with other people because nobody ever looks at my Omni Focus database. That's private, and there's stuff in there that would be embarrassing for other people to see. So um, Omni Outliner is where I, you know, do my Omni Focus planning for any. Like if I I have a one document that I use to organize all of my stuff with one particular client, and in Omni Focus there's a pointer that says. Go look at the public document to do those things, but then come back and then I go back to OmniFocus. And that's where the, the, the private things that I'm doing that don't you – know, one, of, one of my tasks there is to check in with certain people at work to make sure that they're doing the things that they said they're doing. And I can't say on the public document, here's – I'm going to be doing this. I'm going to be checking up on you because I'm the consultant. That's not my role to manage people. But I have to do that to keep my work on track. So, so that's the public-private thing, and Omni Outliner is where I would go public. But in order to put that on my Android, I did another tool. So I found an application. It's just called Outliner. Uh, I forgot to write down the name of the app, so I'm going to the name of the design developer, and I will look that up now while I'm uh, while I'm talking to you. So the um, Outliner basically can deal with OPML exports. So basically, an Omni Outliner, any any list any outline that I want to put on my Android phone, uh, I save it as OPML, I put it into a particular Dropbox folder. The Outliner app does not, uh, you know, it's, it's visually, it's, it's, it's finicky, there's stuff that it's not very good at, but it shows me my list and it lets me edit them. And the only downside is that because OPML doesn't support rich text, I lose a few features that I've been using in, on the Outliner. But I'm finding that most of my outlines that I'm creating, I do want on my phone. And, uh, and so that's that, you know, Omni Outliner plus OPML plus Dropbox plus, plus Outliner. I realize it's four different tools, but I'm going to call <laughs> one, I'm going to call that one, you know, top pick of the week. <laughs> okay. So a combo pick. Yep. Outliner um, plus Omni Outliner plus OPML. Right. And I'll, I'll, I'll text you the name of the developer because I'm, I'm, I'm not being able to pull up. You know, I can't, I yeah. can't multitask. I'll send it to you so you can put it in the show notes because when you search for Outliner in Google Play, you get like a dozen different applications and you got to find the right one. My favorite outliner was Tree. And oh, I've heard worked, of that. I've never used it. It worked horizontally. I mean, it was basically just a different way of presenting an outline, but it felt more like a mind map, okay. which is like for me, mind maps make way more sense than outlines do, just the way I think. Yep. Um, tree, it, it, it kind of brought the two together for me. It seems to be no longer developed. I think Tree is dead. I wish it were not. Is it still available somewhere or is it dead and, and off, you know, you can't download it anymore? It seems to be the latter. I don't think you can even find it anymore. 
Well, you know, if you still have a an installer from 2008 somewhere. <laughs> I do. Uh, <laughs> I am using a, a copy that I do not know how long it will last, how many OS upgrades it will last through. I would love to look at that just so I have an idea. Even if I don't use it, I would love to have that just so I can see the paradigm. Yeah. And then, you know, to inform me for future uh, applications. Yeah. You, you, you made me think there was one app that I used in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, which I'm guessing you did, too. Unless, I mean, there's a 10-year difference between us, so maybe it was before you needed stuff like this. Um, it was called Arrange with an exclamation point, and then it became called Web Arranger. Never heard of it. And it was fantastic. It was, it was basically an outline system. But it was the first app, and for a long time, the only app, and actually even today, it's hard to find this, that lets you set up custom metadata for anything you put in there. So you could, you know, it was basically a database on top of an outliner. So you could, you know, I mean, no one called it tags back then, but you could create, you could create tagging system. You could relate one part of an outline to another part of an outline, um, not not with a database relationship, but you could, you know, do a, a manual like, you know, go look over here and put that into metadata in the same place everywhere. Um, and it was fantastic, and then it died, and it went away, and uh, and I've never seen anybody else, uh, you know, implement those ideas as well. I mean, this is why I built my own system. I, I spent months building a FileMaker Pro database, and this is when I was unmedicated, and I, I might might have actually been my, before my ADD diagnosis because I got my bipolar diagnosis five years earlier, and um, I spent two three months hyper focused on the, on the system to the exclusion of everything else. This is one of those times when I went broke because I was not doing enough, you know, focusing on my money. And this was the most baroque system you ever you could ever see. Where when I put in a new task, it would not only have a field to put in estimated time, but it had a timer to time it, and it would it had a mathematical formula to make future projections of the task based on how much actual time I put into it, um, which actually I still do. I still have a mathematical formula that I do manually um, where it's the you, you track your time for a, like a, a task that takes like 20 minutes, and the next time it takes 10. So the first time you put down – you write down in the notes field. You write down 20 plus 10 slash 2, and you put down 15 for the next time. And then the third time you divide it by 3, and the notes keeps track of it for the first 10 times. After 10 times, you have – a good estimate, um, which I find is very useful for my frequently recurring tasks. That is actually uh, brilliant. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that, that so I do that manually, but in the FileMaker Pro database, I had it uh, automated. It took me two weeks probably to come up with the algorithms because uh, you know some of them were on sine curves, some of them were square roots. I spent months on this thing, and then I think I used it for two weeks, and I and I let it go aside because all of my great ideas of what I thought I would need. Turns out I didn't use them. They didn't adapt to me, and it was too much. Like when I thought, okay, this should be X instead of Y. Well, now that I'm allowing, you know, now that I'm, I've gone back to what I should be doing. Um, I didn't have the time to put in the time to to, to, to make it more, better. So that's that's the that's the process that I went through, which informed my how to pick out new tools and how to adjust them. Because I I make it very clear that the things that you're uh, and and also more importantly, uh, there's a chapter on failing successfully, so that when things go wrong, either in a small way with a particular project or in a big way because you or your wife gets sick, um, you know, failing successfully is how to switch from where you are now to crisis mode, how to recognize you're in crisis mode, how to adjust yourself to deal with a different situation. And then afterwards, some crises are, become lifelong changes, how to adjust to your new situation or how to adjust to um, or how to get back to normal, whatever your new normal is. So in all of these cases, the, the transition process 
to me, is as important as what you're doing when you get there because it's a crucial two-month period or three-month period when the system is most likely to fail and you're most likely to be stressed and and have it fall apart on you. So I paid a lot of attention to that, and and the Pharmic Pro database was where I learned the worst-case scenario, so now I know what the best-case scenario is. Um, but yeah, but like, I would love to see, I mean, like, to me, OmniFocus 4, which would be a huge increase in complexity. I mean, what I want is I want custom metadata. I want to be able to, you know, if I want to, like what I'm doing in daylight, you know, the reason I need daylight is because I can't link OmniFocus effectively to my contacts. I can't link OmniFocus effectively to my, um, uh, to, to or organizations and to, and you can, you can forward email to OmniSync. Uh, to 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 the OmniSync Dropbox, but then you lose all the context and conversations. It's just not. It's just you know, email does not work well with any task management system except a CRM. Yeah, it really does. So uh, you know, I I you know I want links. Um, actually, the trick for uh, for email that I, the best one that I found is uh, there's an Apple script which I'll I'll give you. A, I have it published on my website. I'll give you the link for your show notes. Um, there's a command in Apple script, a one line command that says, show me a URL for this message, um, and put it on the clipboard. So I've got a one line Apple script that if I'm looking at a message, I go to my Apple script menu, I pull down get message URL, I paste it in the notes field and then I can click on it in the notes field and it takes, you know, any, any cocoa notes, any cocoa text field, click on it and takes me right back to the message in, in mail. And so I use that all the time, but I can't use it for stuff that syncs to uh, iOS or Android because that message URI structure only works on Mac. Right. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe I haven't checked it recently on iOS. Maybe it works on some iOS devices now. I, I don't know. Yeah. All right. So what's your third pick? Okay. So um, the third pick is I've always been in favor of um, virtual desktops. I use one virtual desktop for any given project that I'm working on. And then when you, at some point there's, when you have a lot of desktops, like there's, all of the window, like right now, I've got one particular window with a label for uh, systematic, and it's got your Skype window, and it's got my uh, uh, you know, my notes, and I have eight other virtual spaces with all the other stuff that I am still in progress on. Mission Control is good at that, but it's not great, and for lots of spaces, it's difficult. So I just found this application a couple of weeks ago called Total Spaces Two. I want to say it's fifteen or twenty bucks, maybe less, and Total Spaces 2 gives you the ability to have mission control spaces using some of the features that you used to get in uh, in third-party tools before Apple Sherlocked them and before that in X-Windows tools. So I used to have I a third-party app. virtual spaces. That's an X-Windows term. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, space, spaces with a capital S is the Mac term. Right. Um, uh, X-Windows is the one that created the terminology, and they, I mean, they've got engineering terminology about it. Um, but I mean, like mission control is built into every Mac and you know, mostly the only people I've ever seen using it are tech people, uh, total spaces. The key thing that it does is it creates hotkeys and it creates grids. So I used to have a system whereby in the, in mission control on the left side, like all, all the way to the far left for fits law purposes was OmniFocus. And then the next one was mail app. And then the next one was something else that I was using all in full screen spaces. So I could just scroll to the left and get them. And then in the middle were eight or nine screens that I was working on projects. And on the right were my calendar, 
uh, a fluid SSB, a single site browser to get me to Facebook and a few other things. And so it was left, right and center and it was spatially organized. Total spaces, I get a grid. And now I have a five by five grid of 25 different spaces where on the bottom, I can tell you from memory, it's uh, face, it's, it's OmniFocus, Gmail, Mail app, Slack, and a combination Facebook, Twitter screen. On the second row, I've got two that are, okay, one that's become daylight recently, um, one that's become my Google admin for G Suite for, for student pugwash, uh, a Google Sheets full screen uh, browser for three or four spreadsheets that I use to track my personal expenses and for other things. Uh, what is screen nine? Screen nine is my calendar, and screen 10 is where I put my virtual. Uh, my VNC connections to my computers and when I'm working on client site. That's the bottom 10 screens and two rows of five. The top three rows all have hotkeys and each one is a different project. And crucially, to, the big thing, to, the, 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 the reason I bought it in the first place before I knew about any of these other features, it lets you put a label on a desktop. So I can say this is my systematic desktop and when I'm looking at the grid, I know which one is systematic and I don't have to go scrubbing through 10 screens looking at these tiny, tiny windows on my MacBook screen to to figure out which one it is. I can just see that's systematic. I go right to that. Um, and if if it's something that's an ongoing project, like I've got in screen six, is where I keep my Twitter feed uploaded with excerpts from my book, and it posts every four hours. It just automatically posts, um, and that's an ongoing thing. So that you know that's always screen six, and I know to go there every morning to to load it up again. So uh, does this actually does this reduce uh, attention problems? Uh, does it work with your ADHD or does it just multiply I, it? I don't know. I mean, it could it could go either way. Um, I haven't actually done a time motion study. It feels like it works. It feels like it can keep things more under control. Um, the problem is that when – so mission control, because it was unwieldy, I had a task in my system, which was fairly frequent, to go through all of my screens and – clean up all my windows, close the things that I'm not currently in progress on. Like if I'm not going to look at it in the next day or two, it shouldn't be an active project. It should be put away. Um, Mission Control, I was doing that more often. Now that I have 25 screens, I need to, I can do that less often. Uh, and I am doing it less often. And maybe that's, maybe that's, I need to, that was a focusing technique that I should probably move, uh, consider moving back to. Um, but the main problem with what I'm doing is, we were talking before the show. I had to reboot my Mac before we recorded this because I turn on my Mac and my load average goes up to <laughs> well over 200 for 15 minutes after waking from sleep because all these things that have been sleeping are now all trying to spin up at the same time. Yeah. And it's it, you know I need to wait a while before I can actually use it for any serious work. And that is a that's a you know, I put my computer to sleep all the time because I'm I'm constantly going from Starbucks to a meeting or from one Starbucks to another halfway across town. So, um, you know, waking from sleep and needing to wait 10 minutes, I, the workflow is so good that my, my solution for that is I'm saving money. I'm going to buy a 15 inch MacBook because the difference in speed from the 2016 MacBooks, 13 inch I have now to the 2018 MacBooks that came out two, three weeks ago are, it's pretty huge. And, uh, so that's, that's my preferred solution. But in the meantime, I probably need to have fewer things open and fewer screens. All right. So let's talk about where people can find you. Okay. Um, my Twitter handle is at Jeff Porton. Um, that is, that's how I prefer people, you know, from the general public who are listening to the show. That, that's the best way you can touch with me first. You can send me, you can at me or you can send me a DM. And then if we, you know, if we have a conversation, then, then I'll give out my email address there. Uh, the, my website is www.jeffporton.com. Uh, 
The book is TakeControl.com. Uh, oh, and uh, there is a 10% discount for anybody listening to this. It's TakeControl.com slash Systematic. Uh, you'll get a 10% coupon code. That will be in the show notes. Okay. And uh, if you're interested in Student Pugwash, it's www.spusa.com. Uh, and uh, what's up there? In, oh, pardon me, .org, not .com. Um, and if you go there, it's very much a placeholder website. The prior website, it's my fault because I was the web guy before I became the chair, and I just wasn't—I I wasn't maintaining it properly. Um, the prior website was just out of date. I put up a placeholder website talking about the programs we're doing and a little bit about our history, but it's enough to get you started. And and there actually, I will give it out. There is a link to an email address, which for the time being does go to me. So uh, that is a public email address for me. So. Yeah, but you know, anybody who wants to get in touch with me about any of those three things, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear back from people. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time and being here. Thank you for putting me up, putting up with all of my ramblings. I, <laughs> I know I jumped from topic to topic, and then I've gone to the way. Yeah, you know, I mean, you, 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 you gave me plenty of rain, and I, I used all of it. I apologize. <laughs> You're forgiven. Um, so Jeff Horton and the book is "Take Control of Your Productivity" from Take Control Books. And there will be a link to the 10% off discount. And thanks to everyone for listening this week. Uh, we'll see you in a week. Hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Systematic. You can find me at brettterpstra.com and as TT Scoff on every platform, including Facebook, Twitter, GitHub, Last.fm, and probably a bunch you've never heard of. Just search for TTSCOFF. You can also find Systematic on Twitter, so to tweet at me and my guest, and for updates and announcements, follow Systemcast, S-Y-S-T-M-C-A-S-T. If you're loving Systematic, don't forget to go leave an inspiring iTunes review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.